Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben and Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Every time in a movie that I see groups put aside differences to just all commit to the same goal, mm-hmm. it is truly heartwarming for me. Like it does something chemical in my brain. Like, like what kind of scene? Like in Lord of the Rings... <laughs> don't you do it I'm sorry everyone out there I, I, I don't like Lord of the Rings and maybe this is going to end my career at Civics 101 but I just don't like those movies all of the good and decent creatures of the world banding together to fight a singular evil including trees that would mean the destruction yeah of life you like that part when everybody comes together from all these different places yes. to battle this big evil force and then go back to their own lands to probably fight each other in another 50 years well, including ghosts, <laughs> including ghosts that come out of a cave. Yeah, I like it all. Because guess what? The epic gathering of armies from across lands is not just a fantasy. In fact, the United States is one of 30 countries that have all sworn to stand together in the face of an attack in an intergovernmental security alliance stretching from North America to Europe. You're listening to Civics 101. I'm Nick Capodice. I'm Hannah McCarthy. And today we are going to talk about one of the most powerful defensive alliances in the world. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization. More powerful than ghosts in a cave. <laughs> I'm not even convinced you've seen the whole series. Those kings in the hole in the cave and they come in and he's like, please, Joe, okay, fine. And they just kill everyone. You bow to no one. We are moving into an era in which vast physical forces cast a pall over our world. NATO has kept the peace of Europe and the Atlantic through 12 dangerous years. Tools like these have always kept NATO forces prepared for a possible attack. And tonight, the threat from Russian President Vladimir Putin may be the most tenuous moment for NATO in decades. That an armed attack against one or more of the allies in Europe or in North America shall be considered an attack against them all. Yeah, so NATO is a security alliance. It's a transatlantic security alliance that's composed of 30 member countries, including the United States. My name is Marla Keenan. I'm an adjunct senior fellow at the Stimson Center, and I've been working um, with and on NATO issues since 2007. So my primary um, focus is on the protection of civilians in armed conflict. We're going to go back to a time when the United States was really entering the world stage in a different way, as a different kind of power. And that would be the end of World War II. Fifty-two countries came together to create the United Nations, to maintain peace and prevent another world war. We cannot forget the untold destruction that has been wrought, nor can we forget 
how close our whole civilization has come to utter ruin. The countries that joined the United Nations agreed to several key things. Each member of the United Nations is under solemn obligation to maintain international peace and security. Each is bound to settle international disputes by peaceful means, to refrain from the threat or use of force against the territory or independence of any country, and to support the United Nations in any action it takes to preserve the peace. Any country in the world can um, respond to a threat upon its people or its land. Um, It's called the inherent right to self-defense. But if there are other things happening, for example, it's quite helpful to have the United Nations who can get together and make a collective decision about what needs to happen and what type of operations there need to be. So, for example, the UN will often mandate a peacekeeping mission in a country that's either requested or isn't capable of providing security for its own population. Basically, the UN says that you shouldn't use force unless it's to defend yourself. And if you need help doing that, the UN gives other countries the ability to help. So what I want to know is, if we have the UN, why also have NATO? How are they different? NATO is a security organization. So it is focused specifically on securing the citizens and the space of Europe, right? So a kind of different um, approach to global order versus like very protectionary and very security focused on um, a specific area of land and people. Even though 52 countries originally signed on to the U.N. charter, there were still disputes. And in the years after World War II, there was one country in particular that was making everyone else kind of nervous. Russia had swallowed up eight European countries without firing another shot, other than those of the execution squad. Now, the United Nations is primarily a peacekeeping organization, as we've said. But as the Soviet Union continued to spread its power, some nations decided, you know what, maybe we need to escalate this a little bit. And the United States, which had an extremely powerful military and the advantage of being separated by the ocean, was well positioned to take the lead. President Truman had also made it U.S. policy to prevent the spread of Soviet power in a little thing called the Truman Doctrine. Right. This is the U.S. basically calling out the Soviet Union and saying, if anyone else feels threatened by the Soviet Union, we, the United States, are going to help. I believe that it must be the policy of the United States to support free peoples who are resisting attempted subjugation by armed minorities or by outside pressure. And in Europe especially, this threat of expansion was sometimes right at the border. So eventually, the United States and 11 other countries got together and said, we're going to form an alliance that will help make us all better prepared to defend against an attack. The 12 countries were, for anyone who's interested, Belgium, Canada, Denmark, France, Iceland, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Norway, Portugal, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Nice job. NATO provided sort of that first bulwark uh, protection against the Soviet Union and any security operations that they might run. So, for example, it gave us the ability to, to have not the U.S. be the front line, but for the European allies to be strengthened by the U.S.'s support and also for the European allies to help 
um, support the United States. So the North Atlantic Treaty, the Washington Treaty, was signed in Washington, D.C. in 1949. And it's basically the founding document that the entire NATO alliance is built upon. So my name is Rachel Rizzo, and I am a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Europe Center, where I focus on the U.S.-European security relationship, NATO, Germany, um, and transatlanticism more broadly. Quick note here. You'll hear the word ally throughout this episode. When we say ally, we mean a country that is part of NATO. At the signing of the treaty in 1949, President Truman emphasized the geographical importance of NATO. In this treaty, we seek to establish freedom from aggression and from the use of force in the North Atlantic community. This is the area which has been at the heart of the last two world conflicts. It's one thing to say, we are all an alliance, but what does the treaty actually say? Okay, the treaty has 14 articles that lay out how the alliance will work. And they cover a whole array of topics. So, you know, for example, Article 2 discusses how NATO members will contribute toward the development of peaceful and friendly international relations by strengthening their free institutions, by promoting conditions of stability and well-being, um, trying to eliminate conflict in their international economic policies and encouraging economic collaboration. Article 3 talks about how members will actually achieve the objectives of the Washington Treaty and says that the members will maintain and develop their individual and collective capacity to resist armed attack. So basically, as we'd understand it today, spend enough on defense to maintain a credible military and contribute to the mutual defense of all alliance members, which now are 30. So and then it talks a little bit about how countries can both join and leave the alliance. So while the treaty isn't long, it is pretty comprehensive. So allies have to agree to spend a certain amount of money on their own military. Yeah, because it's not really fair to be part of an alliance if you're not actually contributing to that alliance, right? Otherwise, you're just kind of a hanger-on. Like, you know those stories of various species who live together because they get something from one another? Like that smaller fish that hangs out with sharks and like cleans their teeth? So it's like one of those examples of those wonderful symbiotic relationships of nature. Yeah, like the sea anemone and the clownfish. Yeah, exactly. Basically what I'm saying is that being a part of this alliance means that a country is contributing in some way to the goal of that alliance by building up its own security. And lately there's been an increased focus on the amount of money allies are actually contributing. Part of Article 3, it, you know, it says that the members will maintain and develop their collective capacity to resist armed attack, which means maintaining a credible military. This is why in the last few years, but actually for decades, we've talked about defense spending, how much European allies are spending on defense. So if you remember, during the Trump administration, there was a lot of focus on how European members of the NATO alliance weren't meeting their defense spending goals. And those goals are uh, to spend 2% of their GDP on defense by the year 2024. And for years, allies have been measuring their uh, their movement towards that goal. And in the last few years, there has been an increased number of allies who are now 
credibly going towards 2%. Why is how much money a NATO ally spends on defense such a big deal now when NATO has been around for decades? It wasn't because of the um, <laughs> the harsh rhetoric of the past president. It was actually spurred by the Russian invasion of Crimea in 2014. In 2014, Russia invaded Ukraine and annexed the peninsula of Crimea. The moment Russian troops smashed their way into Ukraine's Crimea airbase. Backed by armored vehicles, gunfire and stun grenades, special forces supported by pro-Russian militia which is really when we saw multiple allies start turning around years of defense spending decreases and actually start paying attention to how they were spending and what they were spending it on. Can I just clarify something? Yeah. Does NATO have its own military? Like, are there NATO tanks and NATO planes lying around? No, no, no. So Rachel says that this is a common misconception. NATO doesn't have troops under its own command. I think that's really important to remember. There's not a head, you know, NATO general that has a whole army at their disposal, right? This is because it's a collective alliance. Everyone contributes uh, basically their military, their assets as they see fit. Um, and NATO also doesn't really own that much military equipment itself. It owns some airborne warning and control systems, aircraft, some patrol aircraft, but it's not like there are a bunch of NATO planes sitting in Brussels ready to be deployed. Okay, so you've got 30 different countries with different sized militaries, different governments, different interests, but they're all in agreement about this one thing. They're in agreement about defending the collective group from an attack. So if there is no central military, how do they do that? I think the most important thing is this idea of consensus and the fact that the reason that NATO is strong is because its decisions are made with every single ally at the table. It forces compromise. It forces conversations, allies who might come to the table with different uh, ideas or security concerns have to find common denominator with their fellow NATO allies. And NATO isn't led by any one country. I, I think that there's this misconception that just because the United States is militarily, economically, the most powerful ally in NATO, that it somehow has a greater say in NATO decision-making than other countries. And while it does hold great sway, its role isn't any more important, at least in my mind, than the 29 other members because of the importance of consensus building. This is Marla Keenan again. Yeah, so it's it's less about NATO doing for the specific country as it is that the the collective contribution that NATO allies make to the alliance then creates more security for all of the allies, right? So, you know, it's difficult to think about it in terms of like, okay, well, the U.S. contributes X, Y, and Z, and that means that they deserve, you know, A, B, and C. It doesn't really work that way. It's, it's, it's contributions to the alliance and not to specific countries. NATO headquarters themselves are in Brussels, Belgium, 
And each ally of NATO has an ambassador or representative and supporting staff. More than 4,000 people work at NATO headquarters, and there are NATO outposts around the world. There's also an international staff that is sort of the, if you think of it as sort of the secretariat of all of the allies. So there is a secretary general. The current secretary general is um, a gentleman from Norway named Jens Stoltenberg. And he basically serves a four-year term, and he's the chief administrator um, and the international envoy for NATO, but he's representing NATO, the large umbrella, and not his country. So his country, Norway, will also have a permanent mission that does the work on behalf of the country. NATO has something called the North Atlantic Council, which includes the secretary general and the permanent representatives of each country. The North Atlantic Council is the decision-making body of NATO. So let's say that one country is under threat. How do we get from a country that needs help to an actual response from NATO allies? That gets us into how the North Atlantic Council works and the two biggest parts of the Washington Treaty that we haven't talked about yet. Articles 4 and 5. These two articles lay out how NATO responds to a threat. And we'll get into that right after this break. But first, if there are any listeners out there who just can't get enough civics, you should know that we have a fun bi-weekly newsletter. It's called Extra Credit. It's free. It's full of fun stuff. And you can sign up at our website, civics101podcast.org. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben & Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. Hey there, everyone. Hey, folks. The whole Civics 101 team is here in D.C. for a week. That's why you hear cars and stuff whizzing by. Uh, We are in the district to talk to the people that we talk about on a daily basis. And a lot of those people work in the executive branch. That is the largest employer in the world. And a lot of those people work in the civil service, where, after the assassination of James Garfield, it's a long story, they take an exam to make sure that they are the right person for their job. But if you run a business, and you're not the federal government, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all, but to match instead. With Indeed. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. 23 hires are made on Indeed every minute, and their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use it, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash civics. Just go to Indeed.com slash civics right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash civics. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire? You need Indeed. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. So, Nick, I want to talk about a movie you love. There's this scene in Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, Stanley Kubrick's satirical film about the Cold War, where there are a bunch of politicians gathered in a giant underground room known as the War Room. 
that has a huge round table. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Now, NATO headquarters might not be in an underground bunker, but the place where allies meet looks a lot like the war room of Dr. Strangelove. I want you to picture a giant round table so big that each person has a microphone at their seat so that everyone at the table can hear them. Like a massive, extremely tense Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah, exactly. Because the way that NATO actually works on a logistical level depends on every single ally having a seat at the table, literally and figuratively. We've talked about how NATO was formed. Now, let's get into how it looks in action. We'll start with Article 4 of the Washington Treaty. This is Rachel Rizzo. Article 4 is based on consultations. It says that NATO members can consult together whenever, in the opinion of any of them, the territorial integrity, political independence, or security of any of the parties are threatened. These aren't invoked very often. In fact, every decision that NATO makes has to be made at the level of the North Atlantic Council, which is the highest decision-making body within the alliance. If one ally decides to say no, then the decision isn't made. Frankly, I'm curious about how often that consensus has been reached. But I'm also wondering, what happens if everyone can't agree? Or if a situation needs to be addressed quickly uh, and it's taking too long for everyone to get on the same page? Okay, let's start there. Marla Keenan from the Stimson Center said that if all 30 allies in NATO don't reach a consensus or they can't reach a consensus quickly enough, some of the allies can still work together. One example she talks about was in Libya in 2011 when civil war broke out and the Libyan government harmed civilians, which is considered a crime against humanity. But Muammar Gaddafi remains defiant, calling into state TV to say if the U.S. wants a long war, they will get it. The U.N. called for a ceasefire and gave foreign governments permission to enforce that ceasefire in order to protect civilians. And so that kind of gave the international blessing for um, there to be an operation there. The interesting part was that NATO could not come to an agreement quick enough to deploy. And so what happened is a few of the allies, including the U.S., decided to do sort of a smaller coalition of the willing until NATO could then get to its decision-making mechanism where it then did um, engage in that conflict. So there are different ways to kind of work around. But in the end, if NATO is going to commit itself, it has to be all 30 countries. Now, that doesn't mean that all 30 countries have to be in the actual operations. It just means that that decision has to be made together. How often has that happened? Article 4 has been invoked seven times in NATO's history. So the last time we saw an Article 4 consultation was actually last month in light of the Russian invasion of Ukraine when the Baltic states decided to call for Article 4 consultations at the North Atlantic Council. We're taping this episode in April 2022 in the second month of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Vladimir Putin finishing this speech, essentially declaring war on Ukraine. Um, We heard the sound of explosions. As Rachel said earlier, NATO considers Russia a big threat. And Russia, similarly, considers NATO a big threat. So I'm going to read Article 4 for you. The parties will consult together whenever, in the opinion of any of them, the territorial integrity, political independence, or security of any of the parties is threatened. 
So here, when they're talking about parties, they're talking about allies. And so some of the Baltic states got together and said, hey, we think we need to talk about this because this is obviously very close. Poland, for example, is an ally. And, you know, when we're talking about attacks happening in Lviv, that is literally right over the border from Poland. So it was incredibly important that they got together and they pulled this meeting together very quickly. And it kind of started the discussion about the crisis in Ukraine. People talk, uh, especially in the last month or so about enhanced forward presence. And basically after Russia invaded Crimea illegally in 2014, NATO allies realized that they really needed to step up deterrence in the Eastern part of the alliance. So Poland, Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania all are home to multinational battalions that are on a rotational persistent rotational basis that are meant as a tripwire deterrence measure um, to help protect the NATO's eastern flank. And in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine over the last month, they are increasing not only their presence in these four multinational battalions, but also allied presence in places like Romania and um, Bulgaria and Slovakia to, to reassure allies that are in the southeast region of the alliance. But Ukraine is not an ally of NATO, and that's something that's come up a lot lately in the news. Ukraine has wanted to become an ally of NATO, but Russia doesn't really want that to happen. Yeah, so we've said that an ally is a country that is part of NATO, right? There are also partners that aren't part of the NATO alliance, but share interests. Or in the case of Ukraine, really want to be part of the alliance. All right, but what is the specific difference between a partner and an ally? The big difference here is that NATO allies are bound together by the Washington Treaty. They are obligated by treaty to defend one another. A partner isn't. A partner doesn't have that same security. But there are significant partners that the that the uh, alliance has around the world. So partners of NATO can be individual countries or even other multi-country alliances. There's the Mediterranean dialogue that has partners around the Mediterranean. There's the Istanbul Cooperation Initiative. There's also the Enhanced Opportunity Partners Program that has six members of it, including Sweden and Finland and Ukraine. And countries like Sweden and Finland have shown interest in joining NATO. In fact, by the time you hear this episode, the makeup of NATO may be different. And Rachel also mentioned Ukraine, which makes me think about the fact that Russia has been engaging in the kind of warfare that spurred the creation of NATO in the first place, spreading into nearby European territory by force. But because Ukraine is not an ally, it's a partner, NATO as an alliance is not obliged to directly defend Ukraine. As of right now, NATO has been focused on keeping the invasion contained in Ukraine. But NATO countries can still provide assistance to Ukraine without having to wait for NATO's consensus? Yes. The U.S., for example, has been sending military support directly into the country. Like Marla said, a country that is part of NATO can still act independently of NATO, so long as it is abiding by the charter set out by the United Nations. All right. So Article 4 is about all the NATO allies getting together around the big table to try to agree on how to respond to a security threat. So what happens when everyone agrees that one ally has been attacked and the whole alliance should act? This is Article 5. Think of it like 
in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I'm going there again, Nick. When Pippin lights <sighs> the <laughs> when Pippin lights the fire beacons in Gondor, and all those men on those mountaintops across Middle Earth rush to light their fire beacons until the fires reach Rohan. Couldn't Gandalf have just lit them all with his staff? Anyway, I'm not gonna get there. You just that's in the same you, vein you as know, like the eagle could have carried the ring to Mount Doom. We've been over the eagle thing. What's Article Five? This is the big one. This is why countries seek to join. It states that uh, the parties, meaning the allies, agree that an armed attack against one or more of them in Europe or North America is considered an attack against them all. And that if any sort of attack like this occurs, each ally will assist the party attacked individually and in concert with the other parties, uh, such actions that are deemed necessary. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that um, <laughs> allies are going to go to war for other allies. It doesn't explicitly state that. It says that they will take actions that are deemed necessary. But by and large, this is understood as meaning um, they will defend an ally that is attacked. Now, the only time that Article 5 has ever been invoked in the alliance's 73-year history was on September 12th, 2001, after the September 11th attacks. The United States NATO allies stand ready to provide the assistance that may be required as a consequence of these acts of barbarism. In 2001, there were 19 members of NATO. So as I mentioned before, all of these decisions are made at consensus. Uh, every ally has to agree. The day after the United States was attacked, you had um, all allies all agree that this was uh, an attack that was eligible under Article 5. So once all the NATO allies agreed that, yes, this was an attack on one of us and therefore an attack on all of us, what happened next? There were eight official actions that were taken by NATO in response to the 9-11 attacks. I think it's probably too in-depth to go into, but one of them um, was Operation Eagle Assist, which is where um, patrol aircrafts uh, flew over the skies of the United States from October of 2001 to around May of 2002. And then there was Operation Active Endeavor, which was a naval operation in the Mediterranean, basically designed to prevent movement of terrorists or weapons of mass destruction. But again, each of the countries makes their own decision. NATO does not influence what a country decides to do. They can have those collective discussions, which can help them form. You know, it's like if they know one country is really focused on providing medical aid, you know, like maybe that's not the best thing for all 30 countries to be doing because, you know, these other countries are already covering it. Marla, for example, works for an organization that focuses on NATO's approach to civilian protection. When we started working there in Afghanistan in 2007, what we were seeing at the time was that there were a lot of civilians that were being harmed, either accidentally or incidentally, by the um, by the U.S. and the NATO mission, right? So we went to them and we said, hey, this is really not going to play well for you in a counterinsurgency operation. So you kind of need to get a hand on what's going on. Um, and from there, the discussions just kind of unfolded. You know, for them, I think in that mission, protection of civilians was very much about not harming um, civilians with your own operations. Marla said that NATO's policy for civilian protection is one example of how NATO has evolved over time. 
I think now that we're focusing on Ukraine, I've been really fascinated to hear how many people, especially President Zelensky, has made some really incredible comments about how important the people are with regard to the property, right? So like the people of a country are what make up a country and therefore protecting those people is even more important in his, I heard a quote from him the other day that said, if my people aren't here, then what good does it do if we have all of our land? I'm curious about how else NATO has evolved since its founding. When we think about the leadership of NATO, there's no one person in charge. The North Atlantic Council is the governing body that oversees it all. But again, there isn't any one type of government or one leader who is setting the policy agenda. Obviously, threat perceptions are different amongst all allies. So national interests differ. But when it comes to the defense of the Euro-Atlantic area, it is uh, every ally for every ally. But as as time goes on, um, the not it's not just threat perceptions of European countries that start to differ. It's actual internal political systems that have started to differ. So we're seeing allies, for example, Turkey or Hungary, take actions and uh, create systems uh, within government and society that may not fall in the definition of the democratic values that NATO seeks to defend, right? So in that sense, it gets a little bit tricky because yes, it's a defensive military alliance, but then the question becomes, what are we defending? Are we defending every ally from an armed attack? Yes, but are we also defending attacks on democratic values? And and how does that and how is that even defined? So if it's not something that all allies can agree on, what happens? Does the mutual defense clause become meaningless? Is it rendered less effective? And so I think NATO going forward is starting to think a lot about how to still work effectively together with the reality that systems and societies are continually changing and evolving. And as far as what that means for us? I also think that Americans need to understand that national security depends on strength and partnerships of other countries as well. We may be the strongest military in the world, but we cannot go any of this alone. When we say that alliances against forces of destruction are real, and that's probably a good thing, we also have to acknowledge that they are an absolute necessity, meaning that relationships and consensus and compromise are also a necessity. This episode was made by Christina Phillips with me, Hannah McCarthy, and you, Nick Capodice. Our staff includes Jackie Fulton. Rebecca Lavoy is our executive producer. Music in this episode by Pierce Roswell, Martin Moses, Walt Adams, Newell Teal Records, Croander Eben Flaud, Brendan Moeller, Chris Zabriskie, Young Karts, Edgar Hopp, Lee Rosevere, and Scott Holmes. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, 
and a fan favorite sale on Ben and Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois.